Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Citizens Take Action podcast. I'm your host, David Edward Burke. Joining me uh, for this episode is John Landis, a partner at the Bird Law Group, a director of Citizens Take Action, and someone who passionately believes that he should not be forced to wear a seatbelt in his car. How are you doing today, John? I'm doing well. And yourself? Doing well. I mean, we're in sunny Los Angeles, so we can't complain too much. Today, we're going to get into uh, something that's a continuing part of our education about the movement for an amendment to get big money out of politics. And one of the elements that we want people to be more aware of, one of the tools in the toolbox, is something called an Article 5 Constitutional Convention. And we're going to talk about how that works, how it relates to the push for an amendment, and how one organization called Wolfpack has been progressing in pursuing this Article 5 Constitutional Convention. And John, hopefully you can start us off with a little bit of background for just what is an Article 5 Constitutional Convention and how would we have one? Absolutely. So Article 5 allows a couple different ways where the Constitution can be amended. There are 27 current amendments, 10 were the Bill of Rights, which were implemented with the Constitution, and the other 17 have been added in the in these subsequent years. Um, so far, all the amendments have been done via Congress. The Article 5 allows for, with a two-thirds vote of both houses of Congress, an amendment can be made to the Constitution. Alter- and so it's basically a two-step process, right? It's proposed through two-thirds of Congress and then ratified by three-quarters of states. Three-quarters three of state legislature or three-quarters of a, of a state convention. Those are the two ways of state ratification. So all the current amendments, including some of the more prominent ones, like the 14th Amendment, the amendment that – allowed for direct election of senators, the amendment that limited presidency to two terms have all done by, been, have been done via Congress through that two-thirds proposal and then three-quarters ratification by the states. However, so there, go ahead. Article 5 convention is the other option. So how does that option work? That's the other option besides Congress. If there's an inability to get two-thirds of both houses of Congress to support a proposed amendment, the alternative way it could be done is if two-thirds of the legislature of the states, which given that there are currently 50 states, will be 34 states call, call for a convention to propose an amendment. That would be the alternate way. And then it would be ratified in the same way by three-quarters, i.e. 38, given the current amount of states of the legislatures or via convention in order to ratify it. So it's still a two-step process, but just in this uh, step, Step one is going through the state legislatures to call for a convention instead of going through two-thirds of Congress. Correct. Is that right? So the reason to do this, if there was a belief that one could get two-thirds of the legislatures but and then ultimately three-quarters of the legislatures to ratify, but could not – but it would be impossible to get two-thirds of the houses of Congress, of both houses. Like even if, say, there was a possibility of getting two-thirds – of the Senate, but if there was like no possibility of getting two thirds of the House, then this would be the alternate measure of trying to get something through. So it sounds like it might be really good for things where we th- want to rein in Congress in some way, or we don't really have confidence in Congress to address an issue. 
because then the states would be a different option. To what extent has this tool been used before? Like we've never had one of these Article 5 constitutional conventions in our history, but I understand that we've gotten close and that it's been an organizing tool. So what's the closest we've gotten before? The closest we've gotten before was regards to the aforementioned amendment for direct election of senators, previously senator, which sounds kind of crazy to modern ears, I think. But prior to the early 20th century, senators were actually picked by the states, by state legislatures. They were not directly elected. So, for example, in California, our senators are currently Dianne Feinstein and Kamala Harris, who were directly elected. Previously, they would have been people appointed by the state legislature of California. This is something that a number of states and you know voters and interests had wanted for a while and something they've been pushing for for a number of years. But because, for obvious reasons the Senate had to vote on it and the senators were directly impacted by this. It was hard to get them on board to support this. So it actually came very close to getting the three, the two thirds required to bring it to um, an article five convention. And eventually enough momentum and pressure was pulled on Congress that Congress actually voted for it and it got through that way. And that's how we got the amendment for direct election of senators. Yeah, I think it's kind of a nice move for Congress to, they can sit on their heels for a long time. And then when they see, oh, this this thing is very popular. It seems like a lot of Americans want it. Okay, we'll pass it and take some credit Correct. for and it. Low risk, high reward proposition Correct. for them. And oftentimes the best people, the way to best way to motivate people is by the threat of losing their jobs. So... <laughs> So you've told us how an Article 5 convention is called because it's sort of uncharted territory. What do we know about how, if it were called, how it's supposed to work? Like, who would the delegates be at the convention and how would the delegates decide, you know, what amendment to propose or amendments, for example? Those are all unclear because there has never been one and because the language of the actual Article 5 of the Constitution is not specific on those points. We don't know. I mean, presumably these would be things that would have to be decided um, through some measures of the states or through like the convention's own rules. But there's no guiding language from the Constitution and no precedent that we can rely upon with regards to that, which creates some of the risk involved in doing so. I understand that some state legislatures have had conventions within their state. And so that's something we could look at in terms of potential procedures and the way things would work. But in terms of how the delegates would be chosen, I mean, I think the most likely scenario would be that the delegates at any constitutional convention would probably be comprised of a group that's very similar to state legislatures themselves. I feel like those states would kind of send the delegation of their choice. And so I think if you want to guess, your best guess at what the delegates would look like is to look at the makeup of state legislatures in the country, which today leans Republican, but in years in the future, who knows? But it's definitely uncertain and interesting to consider the kind of risks that could occur if you had a convention called for a good reason, but the people who showed up didn't necessarily agree with that reason as much as you'd like. 
And the process for picking delegates generally is pretty opaque. I, I can speak from personal political experience with some of the controversies involving the dele- delegate selection process among political parties locally has been has something that's been very contentious. Um, so I, I feel like there's definitely a lot of potential risk of having a delegate of having a process where the 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 goal, the protocol for selecting delegates is not completely clear, which at this point it would not be. Our listeners may be wondering at this point, what, like, why haven't they heard more about Article 5 convention calls? Like, are they just not happening at all? Have we never gotten that close, you know, in the past few decades? And I did a little research and I was interested to discover that in the past three years, We've actually had over 15 different convention calls from states on various subjects like a balanced budget amendment, or I saw that Alabama called for a convention for term limits. In addition, um, as we'll get into in a moment, there's a movement to call for a convention for an amendment to address Citizens United and campaign finance decisions. But I thought it was interesting that these don't get a lot of press, but they happen more than you would think. Absolutely. And until like a number of states jump on board and there's and also i think until like there's sort of a cross section of states that seem sort of politically diverse it's sort of hard to build momentum like like if all you have is a handful of blue states or a handful of red states and that seems to be all that's jumping on board and if it's states that seem sort of very closely politically aligned typically it's sort of it seems like a pretty big threshold to get from that to get to 30 to get to 34 states to get to 34 states you're obviously going to need you know a mix of blue red and purple states presumably you're not going to be able to get there just with one very sort of specific type of political alignment yeah i think a lot of journalists attitude and maybe correctly is you know tell us when you get to 10 states then we'll start paying a little more attention Before we jump into specifically how this relates to the movement for a campaign finance reform amendment, what do you think are perhaps some of the biggest strengths of this approach in terms of pushing for an amendment in general? Are there benefits to pursuing the Article 5 convention path as opposed to the go through the United States Congress? Well, I mean, the the obvious advantage is that if there just isn't a Seem, does not seem to be a path forward with Congress as it's currently constituted or looks like it will be constituted in the foreseeable future. This provides an alternate way of, of, of achieving the, the goal. I mean, that would be the, um, the primary advantage I would see. I, I think at least up till this point, it's been seen as sort of a last resort. That's why it's never happened because it's difficult and it's been seen as a more reasonable path to try and do things through Congress. But if we reach the point where doing this through Congress seems to be impossible or extremely difficult, then this provides an alternate approach that also may provide the benefit of, as in the past, putting pressure on Congress to act and showing that there's significant political will and hopefully, you know, bipartisan will and, you know, across different regions of the country will to achieve this. And that will you know, put put um, pressure and motivation on Congress to actually act. One other strength that I think you can see in the amendment through an Article 5 approach is since states need to ratify the amendment anyway, 
it's efficient if they're the ones proposing it, or at least it makes them more acquainted with the idea in the first place. Because if states are the ones saying we want this amendment, then you can have more confidence that it would eventually be ratified since they've already given it their approval. Whereas through Congress, absolutely, you're a less and certain. you know, essentially, if you can get 34 to to, to um, propose it, you you're very close, hopefully, to getting 30, 38 to ratify it. So that would be the um, another advantage. Yeah, you'd only need a few more. As we're talking about the strengths, we'd probably be remiss if we didn't talk about what I think is widely considered the biggest weakness or thing to fear about this approach, which is what's known as a runaway convention. And for those who don't know, this is the idea that you could call a convention for one purpose, but the convention would then run away and do other things you didn't necessarily want it to do. Uh, I think people who lean more to the left might be afraid we could call a convention for an amendment to get big money out of politics, and then it could run away and propose an amendment to ban gay marriage. Or people on the right might be afraid of calling a convention to balance the budget, but then instead of balancing the budget, we end up with an amendment that restricts Second Amendment rights. So do you think that this runaway convention is a valid concern? I know there are some people who are very concerned about it, some who say, oh, don't worry about it at all. I think all. the examples you, you give are this? probably fairly unlikely, although given the lack of actual rules and specific congressional and legal language with regards to the conventions, I wouldn't say it's impossible. I think the more realistic concern is not them going in a you know completely different issue direction than the, what they're proposed for, but just the lack of transparency and clarity in terms of its guiding rules. Like even if it's generally like sticks to the topic of political reform in the absence of formalized rules about who the delegates will be, the process, anything regarding how this convention is actually going to work in practice rather than theory, especially because there's never been one before that we can rely upon as like, you know, with the, with the limited exception of some of these state examples, there's never been something exactly like this. Um, there's, I think there's a risk of just them kind of spinning them their wheels. There's the risk of sort of unintended consequences of exactly what we're trying to fix with this, which is the, the influence of special interests, of corporate interests, of money, into this lobbying because if, if we have these problems with the undue influence of lobbyists and corporate money and special interests in our normal political process, which, which for all its flaws – is fairly well regulated, if if imperfectly so, and does have a lot of legislative, legal, court history to guide things. In this convention where we have none of that at this point, I would say, if anything, there's potentially increased risk. I mean, it, just put yourself in the position of a big lobbyist. I'm just going to use... Um, Say the Koch brothers, since everyone knows them. So let's say, let's presume, you know, maybe fairly unfairly, let's just say hypothetically the Koch brothers are generally against an amendment to get rid of Citizens United and against restricting corporate money influence. But let's say if the con the convention's already happening, if you're the Koch brothers at that point, you know, the convention's a fait accompli, your next move would presumably be to try to influence that convention. 
And in the app, and given that there's less rules and less clarity about how this convention is going to work than there is regarding normal political processes, I think that's a reasonable risk of something that we'd be concerned about with regards to them. I think it's important to keep in mind there is an important safeguard, though, which is that, remember, the amendment is a two-step process. So even if an amendment that few people wanted emerged from an Article 5 convention, it wouldn't be added to the Constitution until three-quarters of states approved it. So that's an important safeguard. And like you, I don't necessarily think the examples I gave before about gay marriage or Second Amendment restrictions are likely. What I think is probably more likely is going to a lot of effort for a convention, and then it just doesn't result in what we want at all. Like or it's something it's that's a huge so compromised and maybe so a- subtly manipulated that it ends up being not, you know, maybe better than what than what we have now, maybe not, but certainly not what we want. Like I think that's far more likely than it's sort of subtle sort of moving in the wrong direction. Like like something like say like a ban on whether whether we pers- whether anyone personally agrees with it or not, just politically say a ban on all guns, if that's what they came out of with this convention, is not going to get 38 states. Like this is not a political non same with the ban yeah. on gay marriage. These are just political non starters at the moment in terms of getting, you know, 30 states, let alone 38 states on board with it. It's just not this is not a concern. But with regards to something that's like maybe subtler. That's where I'd be more concerned. Uh, all right. Well, now let's turn to how this specifically relates to the movement for an amendment to address big money in politics and even more specifically, Wolfpack. So, Wolfpack is a political action committee that was founded by Jenk Uger, who's the host of the Young Turks. And they've been around since 2011. And more than any other organization in the movement for an amendment, they're advocating strongly for an Article 5 convention. That's their approach. Uh, how far has Wolfpack gotten in support, getting states to support their They've gotten legislation a total of five so states on board. Those five states are Vermont, Rhode Island, our home state currently of California, New Jersey, and Illinois. Now, as, as if you're looking for a unifying theme, if it's not fairly obvious, these are all what what I would consider to be traditionally blue states. There's so there's certainly a political sort of fair, fairly uniformity among these states. Um, that that goes along with a total of 19 states that have called in one form or another for an amendment to the Constitution without calling for a convention. So 14 states haven't called for a convention, but have called for an amendment to the Constitution with regard to Citizens United. So overall, 19 states have expressed in some way, whether it's like a resolution, a convention call, a ballot initiative, that they support an amendment to address Citizens United or get big money out of politics. Uh, But most of those have been referendums or non-binding legislation Whereas five Correct. have been the Article Five convention calls, right? And so I think the 19 states is something that bodes well for the movement as a whole. It's at least more than halfway to where we need to be, or about halfway to where we need to be to ultimately ratify an amendment. What's your prognosis for the Article Five convention specifically? Based I'd say, on the I mean, current pace? I'd say at this pace to get to 34 seems very unlikely. I mean, first of all, 
you'd have to get all four, presumably all 14 of the states that have shown some support through this to get to get the Article 5 convention. And then you have to add another 15 to take like a much stronger stance when they haven't even been willing, you know, up till now been taken even like sort of a, a non-binding sort of, I wouldn't say meaningless because the symbolic meaning, but in terms of actions required, like a not doesn't require any specific action. You need 15 states that haven't even taken that step in addition to these 14 that haven't yet called for a convention. So it seems very ambitious. And if you just look at a map of the U.S., some of the just to get to 34, it starts to look pretty just based on political realities. While there are two traditionally red states already that have shown support for an amendment to the U.S. Constitution, those being West Virginia and Montana, in addition to a handful of what are considered to be like at least on some level or another swing states, such as Nevada and Colorado. It's it's a pretty big leap from that to get to 34 states that would take like a very strong stance of requiring a, a, a convention. With that said, if you look at other not say that they, it's a perfect analogy with you, with regard. If you look at other sort of big changes in law with regards to the states, such as, for example, gay marriage or cannabis legalization, once a certain amount of momentum builds, I do think it takes on sort of a life of its own and you might see unexpected progress sort of very quickly once you get above a certain threshold so I wouldn't say it's impossible, but right now it's got a long way to go. Yeah, if you extrapolate the pace from what it's been, you know, less than a state a year since the effort has started, then we'd be looking at a convention sometime after 2050. And I agree with you that you can get momentum and then pick up the pace very quickly. I think what makes me skeptical is that a lot of states or the majority of states that have already considered this legislation or this proposal have said, no, thanks. And so something would have to happen. There would have to be some sort of big change, I think, to get states that previously rejected this approach to adopt it. So it's not out of the question, but I think when you compare it to uh, the pace of an amendment in Congress, where already over 150 members of Congress and senators support one amendment or another, it seems like we're far ahead in Congress to where we are for an Article 5 convention. Absolutely. And the reality the is like the more going. states that jump on board, not even necessarily calling for an Article 5 convention, but just as more states show support for an amendment in one through form or another, maybe take like a little bit more, even if not calling for a convention, a little bit more, you know, specific steps in terms of calling for an amendment, presumably more Congress members will get on board, you know, for one of two reasons, I would say, which are related. Either they already support it or they're open to it, but they just are waiting for sort of the political cover of feeling like it's something that their voters will support, or they may not personally support it, but they feel like if they don't jump on board, it's something, it's an issue that could be used against them when they're running for re-election. Like those are those are just the political realities of how we get from, say, 150 Congress people to 250 to 350 is 
there's probably a number of Congress people right now who are not personally opposed to this, but are waiting for the momentum to build. And there are also some who will vote for it to keep their jobs if that's what they feel is required. You and I will be in D.C. in June and we'll be spending some time on the Hill. And I've been you know, setting up meetings with Republican offices on this issue because that's who we really need to get on board to make it a more bipartisan effort. And as you said, it's not that they're totally opposed to this idea. I think for a lot of them, it makes sense. But so far, this has been seen as a progressive issue because of the only blue states or because only Democrats are co-sponsoring amendments in Congress, with the exception of Walter Jones, the one Republican. And I, it's almost a situation where a number of Republicans in Congress are saying, well, I'll jump if you jump, but someone needs to jump first. Or we need to at least get them to jump at the same time. And I mean, jump on the legislation at the same time. So hopefully we can make some progress on that front. But yeah, it can be disheartening the extent to which I think representatives feel they need political covers and they don't want to be the only Republican on a bill with a number of Democrats. It's kind of the thing that makes me wish we had a little more diverse party system because then I feel like it wouldn't be so uh, polarized. And it'd be easier for people to be a different. I mean, again, a topic for another podcast, but um, multi-party systems certainly have their own issues um, with regards to polarization in different ways, and also um, other issues and other other downsides. There are some upsides, obviously, as well. But with regards to this issue, I think one thing that's really important is like we are so polarized, but this is an issue. That may, you know, it would be nice if we weren't polarized on any issues, but there's less, I feel like, necessity or reason why an issue like this should be politically polarized and say, like, an is- the way an issue like gun control is right now. Like, this is, there's no, there's just no, if you actually look at what the parties, you know, claim to stand for or their values or their mission statements, this is something that has, you know, positive ramifications and things that should connect to the voters of both parties and what they, you know, the, the things that they, um, that they value and claim to stand for. Polls show that there's a lot of support among Republicans and independents for campaign finance reform. And, you know, maybe people forget, but Donald Trump and I think Jeb Bush partially ran on a drain the swamp platform. Uh, Trump was obviously a lot more successful at it than Jeb, but I think that message really resonates with people. Regardless of any, what you think about the actual policies they were advocating or their messaging or anything else, the success on both sides of non-traditional candidates who in one way or another espoused, or at least like in a vague way, seem to be espousing some sort of political reform and you know, changing the system in a fundamental way, whether it's Trump or Sanders, shows that there's support for this on both sides, in, in on the left, the right, and the middle, I think, in different ways, that there's a sense that the system is fundamentally, in many different ways, compromised and broken. And I think there's a lot of support on both sides for, you know, 
for things that can be done to try to change that. And I think when you frame it that way, this is something that could gain a lot of support because when you actually look at why Washington works the way it does, this is a large part of the reason. And one thing that unifies voters of both parties in this country is they generally don't trust Congress. Congress has low approval ratings and they generally feel like the political system in this country is not functioning very well. I think that's something that's both voters of both parties. If nothing else unites them, I think that unites them. So political reform should be something that can unite them as well. When I talk about the idea that an article five convention is something that makes sense to go through States when Congress isn't going to do it on their own. That's, one of the big talking points for Jenk Uger and Wolfpack on the amendment issue is, well, we can't trust Congress to address big money in politics because they're the ones who you know, are benefiting from this money and they're not going to want to change the system that they're benefiting from. That's why we need to go to the states. That, that point doesn't really resonate with me, but Maybe you have a different perspective. Do you feel like state legislatures on this issue are less corrupt than Congress is to use? I mean, I would not claim to have done and to be able to look into these voter into these legislators' souls or to have done a fifty-state survey of exactly how corrupt each legislature is. But I would say generally, the same type of people that are. I mean, I in the last year I've been a lot more involved in local and state level politics than I was previously when I was previously primarily concerned with and involved in national politics. And now I have been a lot more focused on local and state politics within my region. So I've learned a lot more about it and the type of people running and what they're actually dealing with. And the reality is our current Congress members or our current state legislatures, our current city council members, our current, you know, school board, you know, it's a, it's, it's moving down the line of different types of elected office, but these are the same people and they're dealing with a lot of the same challenges, pressures, and just systemic issues in terms of how to raise money, how to build a campaign, how to get support, how to get, how to get endorsements, how to you know, get, get the party support, how to get grassroots support. The, these pressures and challenges are I mean, they're always different, but they're not that different. So I think, you know, Cong- Congress people are just human beings, just like state legislators and every the rest of us. Some are some are better than others, but they're all people and they're all dealing with a system that is set up a certain way. If we think that like state legislators are like magically way less corrupt or compromised or less responsive or dependent upon outside influences and pressures than Congress people. I just don't think that's the case. I think, you know, you're going to have the same issues with state legislatures that you do with Congress people. The example that stands out to me was South Dakota with the uh, anti-corruption act that voters passed. um, I think it was last year or the year before that, would have kind of cracked down on lobbying and gifts and instituted new ethics rules. And it passed with a majority vote of the you know residents of South Dakota. 
And then the legislature called an emergency session to say, oh, these voters didn't know what they were doing. We're essentially revoking the law and passing additional reform to make sure they can't institute it again. And when you look at things like that, I'm inclined to think that state legislatures may be even more compromised than the federal government simply because they have less oversight and attention on them. I feel like, you know, the saying sunlight is the best disinfectant. I feel like it's easier to, to, I guess, engage in your machinations at the local or state level than Congress. Because Absolutely. at least Congress I think has it goes a lot even more farther. people I would say attention. by far the most like, you know, well substantiated and just obvious corruption that I've encountered is on like the city council level and the board, county board of supervisor level. There's, I think, if anything, sometimes there's more corruption at the local level than on the state, than on the state or congressional level, or at least like more naked and more, you know, just more blatant. So I, I certainly don't think there's any reason to assume that as you go to more localized offices and officials that you're going to find you're guaranteed to find more transparency and more honesty. I I just don't think there's anything to back that up. I'd like to think that at lower levels, you'd think, okay, more people are involved. It's smaller. It's harder to get away with things. But I mean, if you go to your average neighborhood council meeting and see that sometimes there are only three people in the audience, there isn't necessarily the attention on the entity necessary to keep it uh, behaving well. Um, I know we have to wrap up in a few minutes. So a couple of things to touch on before we do. Last year, I believe there was a dust up over this Article 5 convention issue and Wolfpack and another organization called Common Cause. And it got pretty ugly. I think it looked pretty bad for the movement to get big money out of politics. The feud was essentially that uh, Wolfpack was concerned that they thought Common Cause was standing in the way of their convention calls because Common Cause as an organization is skeptical and worried about a runaway convention. And I think Vermont, one of the states that had called for a convention, was considering rescinding their call out of fear of this runaway convention. So where do you come down overall as, with all the concerns about an Article 5 call, is it a tool that we should still use because it's good for pressure on Congress? Is it something we should steer clear of because of these risks and the infighting that occurs even among people who want the same thing? I, I don't even necessarily like the phrase runaway because I think the real, like, as I said before, I think the the bigger fear and what we should actually be worried about is not so much a runaway convention as in like, oh, this convention dealing with money and politics is now dealing with completely different issues, but just sort of a, a gradual sort of slow derailing or unwinding of what we actually wanted it to do, I think is the bigger concern. But a, it just seems so improbable that it would actually get to that point that we'd actually have a convention. And there's so much likelihood of that. If we can build enough momentum to get 34 states to go through a convention, I believe we'll be able to get this done another way. Like that's just what history shows and common sense kind of indicates is that if this movement can get enough me- momentum to say get 30 states to vote for a convention, which is a very strong step, Congress will do something or the state legislatures will do something before then. I would focus less 
on yeah, the actual not- risk of the convention, which is very unlikely to actually take place, and more on its value as a as sort of a, a pressure and momentum tool, or as just sort of a way of showing that there is support for this issue. And I think the problems with that is because people do fear the runaway convention, it's it's harder to get people to support the support this than say just a general call for an amendment. Yeah, it has an extra element. Exactly. Or it has an extra reason for people to be opposed to it. Normal legislation through Congress doesn't have. Yeah, I think that I'm not one of those people who's so afraid of a runaway convention that we shouldn't use this tool. I think that the Article 5 calls can be a good way to build pressure and show show Congress where we stand on this issue as you know a state. However, my concern is that people are going to put their eggs in this basket, but it's simply, in my opinion, the riskier basket. Like we have a better chance of passing an amendment through Congress. That bears out not only historically through how we've done it before, but just looking at the numbers, already over 150 members of Congress support it. So I think if we take the energy that we have and make sure we're devoting it to the most likely path to success, you know, then we'll be in better shape. And I get concerned when I see people kind of pursuing the convention approach um, myopically when I feel like it could be a poor use or a suboptimal use of energy. And I'm not saying people shouldn't support it at all, but to me, if you're going to support the convention path, you can't ignore that the federal path is more likely and you should do some organizing on that front Absolutely. or make sure you're and talking your to your congressional offices um, on that well. front too. And that's just – that's sort of like the forest and the trees thing that I think is, becomes an issue with a lot of political movements where we have to focus on what our actual goal is and hopefully our goal – is to unwind the damage that Citizens United has done and and prevent the courts from implementing a similar or worse decision in the future. And you and I, and I think many of the groups in this movement, agree that the ultimate best way to do that is through a constitutional amendment. But we should be focused on that goal and not – whereas the convention is just a tool. And I think sometimes people lose sight of that and see that as the goal in and of itself – and there may may or may not be some people who that's their goal because they have other motives. That may be possible. But I think for those of us, which is presumably the great majority of us in the political reform movement, where our goal is simply to get a constitutional amendment that will prevent the influence of money in politics to this extent going forward, that should be the goal, not this, not the goal of doing it through this one particular tool that A, may not be the best choice of tool and B, is probably not the most realistic scenario in which to achieve the goal. And it's not easy. It's difficult. And you know that we do this all the time with Citizens Take Action and the Restore Democracy Amendment. You know, we're constantly asking, all right, could this amendment be better? Is there another approach we should be taking? Is there another amendment that has a better chance? And it's very difficult. I mean, it's hard to look yourself in the mirror and say, this thing that I've been working on for months or years or however long, I might not you know, want to pursue it anymore because there's simply a better option. And it's, it's hard to do. It's hard to pivot as an organization and as a human being. But I try and tell myself, well, the right thing to do if someone has a better or more likely amendment 
then the one we currently have drafted is to kind of you know, maybe utter a profanity in the mirror. Absolutely. I mean, I've been working right on, uh, you know, working everything we can to in the community where we have a, a, a pending congressional race. We've got a number of candidates running and, you know, many um, activists and passionate supporters of different candidates. And as you go through the process, people have, you know, both the candidates themselves and their supporters have to make that hard choice of what what is the best thing in terms of, the ultimate goal. And if the ultimate goal, while the ideal goal might be this particular amendment language or this particular candidate, if the larger picture goal is getting, you know, an amendment that will fix the problem or, or getting, you know, a, a candidate in office who at least will support and vote with regards to like the, our core values that we care most about and the core issues we care most about, it's a hard choice, but ultimately in order to move forward, it's a choice that people have to make or else we won't get the result we want. Yes. Yeah, not just about what you want. It's about what we need. And even if that's difficult to take the right direction sometimes. All right. Well, I think that we have a, you have a pressing obligation to get to, but thank you for joining us to talk article five amendment, Wolfpack and more. And for those of you listening, please, uh, Go to citizenstakeaction.org, as always, to learn more about what we're doing. And John, thank you for joining us today. We will be back with another episode of the Citizens Take Action podcast soon. Thank you for listening.